What's up, guys? You're listening to The Quest, a podcast that inspires founders and creators to seek eternal growth. I'm Justin Kahn, co-founder of Twitch and partner at Goat Capital. Every week, I sit down with icons and trailblazers from tech, Hollywood, sports, music, and more to uncover their human stories and bring you lessons in finding meaning and happiness beyond success. It's often easy to talk about winning, but I'm here to share the difficult stories that are often left out of the spotlight. I ask the questions nobody else asks, and you'll get the answers you won't hear anywhere else. Now, before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to our new partner, Universe. Every day, I get a ton of DMs on Twitter asking me, Hey, Justin, I want to be a great founder, and I have this amazing idea in my head, but I don't know where or how to start building it. What should I do? It used to be a lot harder, but recently I found an app called Universe that essentially solves this problem. The biggest piece of advice I often give to young founders is just to build and ship something quickly. Luckily, the days of needing to hire a designer or rely on VC funding just to get started are over. Universe is a mobile command center for your digital business and content. It makes designing a website, selling products, and managing your business super easy and super fun. I really wish something like this had existed back when my co-founders and I were just first starting Justin TV. And the craziest thing about it is that it's all free. What I really love about Universe is that it saves you precious hours of sitting at a desk fine-tuning every detail, when instead you could be spending time perfecting your product and not worrying about all the other stuff. You'll have control over everything from payments, style, design, all right at your fingertips. If you're feeling overwhelmed and don't know where to begin, I recommend checking out Universe. Wherever or whoever you are, you can easily get started building your ideas today. It's available for download on the Apple App Store, and we'll link to it in the show notes. All right, my guest today is Odoayo Iweni, co-founder and COO of PVest and the co-founder of Feminist Coalition. Like many founders, Odoayo's entrepreneurial journey was born out of determination and bravery to make a positive change for the world. In this episode, we discuss how she built PiggyVest and a successful online savings platform in Nigeria, the importance of not internalizing failure, projecting calmness in the face of stress, accepting imperfection, and the strength of patience. We also talk about the value of trusting others and accepting the mistakes of others as well as our own mistakes, and allowing people to grow into the role you hire them for. She's an inspiring and refreshing ambassador for female founders around the world, and I'm really excited to bring you her story. Odenayo, welcome yes. to the podcast. Thank you. Can you can we start by just talking about you know, your background, like where you came from? I, I usually ask people, what's their origin story? Where did you come from? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm Nigerian. So I'm, um, I was born in Nigeria and I've lived here most of my life. Um both my parents are university professors. Uh, my dad was a professor and he taught psychology and philosophy. And then my mom is a professor of early childhood education and sociology. So I grew up in a very academic household. And so um, we were very uh, reading and academically inclined and not too much playing. And it was very interesting that this this is kind of where I ended up as an entrepreneur because it was not ex- not ex- expected at all. Um, we lived a very structured upbringing. It was fun, but we always kind of knew what the next steps were and what the next plans were. And then 
after graduation from university, um, I just I met up with my friends, ironically, on the way back from a job interview. And that's kind of how I got started on my entrepreneurship journey and abandoned my plans for a master's degree and, you know, all the other related um, straight path um, things. How did your parents react to that? I can imagine from, a, you know, they're both professors. <laughs> were they shocked that you wanted to become an entrepreneur? Well, shock is one thing. They were shocked. They were annoyed. Um, <laughs> there, was, there was a bit of yelling. Um, but, you know, it's, it's something when, like, uh, your mind is made up and just won't change it. For some reason, and I, I, I really can't even explain why, I was determined to try the entire startup thing. So they just, they couldn't change my mind. And so it took them maybe two years, but then they became okay with it. Awesome. So how did, why did, you know, what, what drove you to want to start a startup? I, I think it's a mixture of things. Uh, and our upbringing was a very big part of that. Um, when we were growing up, my dad used to like, um, like answer our problems in quotes so if you ask him, oh, this happened at school, my dad is going to be like, oh, that happened. So what are you going to do about it? And then he would make us go find solutions, like, and then help us refine it. Or you tell him, oh, I, I read this thing in the news today. And my dad would tell you to remember that no one is coming and you are the only one who can save yourself. And he used to say all these things. And I don't think that they, even they like um, were aware of how much they were ingraining in us that we had to like go out and solve problems. Um, but when I graduated university, I, I did a couple of interviews and what was immediately obvious to me was that graduating top of your class in computer engineering with a first class degree doesn't matter in Nigeria's job market, right? Just didn't. You had to know somebody and I did not. And so I came back from that job interview and I was walking and my friend who I didn't know lived in the same housing estate as I did kind of leaned out of the window and called it. I was like, oh, do I come inside? And I went inside and I, they told me that they were building a loyalty uh, and discount card startup. And I asked, can I join you guys? I don't have any reason for asking that I just did. And they said, yes. And so I joined them and I worked with them as a social media manager and then as an ops person. Um, and three months into that, the person who called me was talking about like, oh, he's building a platform that helps people put together their CV properly. And I'm like, oh, I know how to write CVs. So, and then I joined him and that's how I became the co-founder of my first startup. So, so you just, that, that was it. That, like, you just thought I'm just going to do it. And there was a kind of a, I guess you had an entrepreneurial drive to just go try something new. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I don't want to say I had a drive, but there was something that was very compelling about um, taking like all of these the, the processes into your own hands and just creating them. And in hindsight, it was probably like, I don't think that I'm going to get a job in this market. And if I can't, and I have like incredible results, other people who do and don't know anybody won't as well. If this has a tiny chance of fixing it, we should try. And so I did. And, you know, it wasn't making any money or anything, but I, I thought it was worth it to try and not give it up in the middle and go for a master's degree. And the point I made to that, my parents then was, look, my result is my result. If I decide to go for a master's uh, next year, I still have my certificate and I can probably go for it. They disagreed, but that was kind of my justification. I love that. There's something in there where it's, you know, oftentimes people wait to start a startup until 
that becomes harder and harder over time. Like when you're young, I started my first company too, when I was 21 years old, you know, I didn't have any job prospects yeah. really. And it was just kind of like, Hey, let's just do it as an experiment, you know, cause we had no costs and it was really easy to <laughs> just try something. Yeah. And it's, it's always easier then. So I, when oftentimes people ask like, Oh, should I work at a big company first or something? And it's kind of like, well, maybe so to get some skills, but it's, you know, you want to take the leap before it's too late, you know? Yeah, I agree. Uh, because I was 19 and my mom was like, what do you know about running a company? I'm like, nothing, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> who cares? Okay. So one thing I want to know is how did you persist? You know, through all, I've been through these periods where I was working on all these different ideas. None of them worked like I wanted. And I always want to give up, you know, like how did you keep going and like say, okay, we're going to like keep trying things. That's a very interesting question. Um, you know, we, we had like so many times where we had like, okay, this is not working. And one, one of the things that like my dad also used to tell me when I was growing up, he had like many quotes was like to not take failure personally. And so for instance, when I was in secondary school, I would pass all the subjects uh, and I would fail fine arts just because I, I never like figured out how to draw till now. I'm really horrible at it. And I, I always used to like be very down because I like have all A's and then the credits in fine arts or sometimes <laughs> a pass because I was really terrible. And it went on to university. You know, I was terrible. I studied engineering, but I was really bad at technical drawing. And so I would come home and I would really be bitter about it. And my dad would tell me that, you know, this has no reflection on you as a person. It just means you're not an artist. And so every time something would fail, I would call him and I would explain to him. And then he would ask me, so why do you think it failed? And so it would send me on a journey of kind of reflecting on um, what, what, like, what was my fault? What are the things I could not control? And how can we make it better the next venture around? So I realized that I kept telling myself, you can't stop. You can't stop moving. I don't have a choice anymore. Uh, but two years into like the entire startup journey, I'd lost my master's admission. So it was this or <laughs> get a job and like find some money to, and I was supposed to be on scholarship. So I was going to have to find money to go for the, like the schooling thing. And I can say that I was certifiably ruined for a nine to five corporate job. Um, I really enjoyed the startup life and the flexibility give. And so I would call my dad and he would say, you know, I think you can do it. Like, I don't agree with it, but I think you can do it. Uh, I think, so I think that a support system is really important. Uh, and kind of the understanding that you cannot, you, you have to internalize failure, but you can never prosper, like personalize it. That's like where the damage begins. So you internalize it, you, you know, dissect it. What lessons can you take from this? What are the things that you could have done better? But at the end of the day, you have to understand that, you know, this failed, uh, but Odwayo is not a failure. And yeah. it's usually a, it's a bit it's a bit of a journey. I have to admit. Uh, sometimes it's just really hard to kind of separate both. Uh, but when you do, you kind of find the strength to keep moving. I love that. That's awesome. So okay, then you came up with the idea for Piggy Vest. We came up with the idea for Piggy Vest at the lowest point for free CV in December of yeah. 2015. Uh, um, so we done this thing that like all probably all young startup founders do. We overhired. You know, we raised some money for free CV. And then, you know, we hired many people and we had an office and we had like 30 people in the office and we're paying them. And, you know, we didn't pay attention to the bottom line until it was too late. So by December 2015, we were on our last two million naira. And so going home for Christmas then was not like a happy occasion. 
So we were like, everyone was, we're going back thinking, how exactly are we going to make next year work? And yeah. it was like, I, I wasn't sure. Um, that was the point when I, I actually, I was close to calling my parents and telling them, okay, you know, you win. Um, how do we move from here? But I didn't have to make that call, thankfully, because on December 31st, we were on Twitter. Uh, we're, we're all kind of heavy Twitter users. And there was a lady here in Nigeria who had saved a thousand naira in a wooden box. And she had saved it daily for the entire year. So that day she broke it. She took photos and she had 365,000 naira in the box. And the tweet went viral. You know, and, you know, everyone was like, on Twitter, everyone was like, oh, I'm getting a box next year. I'm getting a box next year. But like something interesting was going on in our group chat. My co-founder, Joshua, brought that tweet to the group chat and said, guys, what if we built a digital version of this? You know, and we had a back and forth both on Twitter and inside the group chat. And our other co-founder, who's the technical one, uh, said, okay, that he's going to try to build it. And two weeks after, by the middle of January 2016, we had an MVP version of PiggyVest. And that's kind yeah. of how the entire journey started. That's amazing. And tell me, what were the things, you know, kind of notable times in your startup that you remember so far? Were there tough times after that, like after that initial, you know, kind of getting it launched? Yeah. So uh, we, we always, we always face tough times with PiggyVest because it's financial and a very, very important like um, currency in this particular space is trust, user trust. And every time something happens, that's not even to us, we're somehow affected because like Nigeria is a very low trust environment and people still don't particularly trust digital services. So uh, a lot of the times it would be the CBN released this regulation and people haven't even read it. They don't know what it is about, but all of a sudden just assume that, oh, this is definitely going to affect piggy bank. And they're like, oh yeah, um, is this going to affect piggy bank? Am I going to have to remove my money? All of a sudden we start trending, people start getting scared and you are in PR crisis mode. Happens yeah. all the time, including this most recent like ban on cryptocurrency that has nothing to do with us, but somehow we were trending <laughs> for two days. And it was just like, guys, we're not even a crypto company. And so it's things like that. It's usually like just trying to find a balance of that, like, you know, trust and reputation is year in, year out, probably the hardest thing. How have you, have you dealt with that? How have you kept calm actually for yourself during those times? Because I can imagine it's almost like getting hit by a bus. You know, you just wake up and then all of a sudden, like you're trending on Twitter that like for something that has nothing to do with your company and people are like super upset or scared. How do you, do, how do you stay calm in those times? Well, I don't stay calm. I just learn to project calm. Like inside my head is like a mess. I'm, I'm like, what do we do? What do we do? But all, like um, you have to, because I don't think it serves anybody for the co-founder of the company to be like uh, as jittery as the users. So while inside my head is like, you know, all over the place and I'm wondering what do we do? How do we respond? What would be the best way to put out a statement? Um, you know, Outside is just, okay, we will be back soon. We're working on fixing this. A particularly good example would be um, last month. Uh, you know, there was like a flurry of things in the fintech space here. Uh, Central Bank put a ban on cryptocurrency trading as it relates to the banking like sector. And two days after that, a, one of the major providers of virtual account numbers in Nigeria shut down the service. Um, yeah. And, you know, we, we're one of the... We're probably the biggest saving, we're the biggest saving and investment like um, fintech company in Nigeria. 
So we have like most people with those virtual account numbers. And that represents, and, and it happened on a Sunday morning. Uh, no one was expecting it. I was like, I thought it was going to be a good day. And all of a sudden, yeah. uh, they released that statement and all the, the mails had gone out to the public before we even, so we got it at the same time as everybody using the platform. And yeah. so it became a whole thing. Uh, and the headlines were, I mean, the way uh, journalism works these days, it's like, oh, X shuts down Piggy Vest account numbers. There was zero context as to the actual thing that was happening. So we woke up and all of us, the entire company had to like be on crisis mode. And we were preparing the statement. And at the same time, we're working on the solution as well. And this is where I suppose the value of partnerships come in because one of the things I wanted to do was tell people, oh, um, truly the virtual accounts have been deactivated, but we will be back with new virtual accounts for you on or before Wednesday. But one of our other friends, uh, who's also a founder, messaged me on WhatsApp and he's like, oh, I can provide like virtual account numbers for you guys right now if your tech team can integrate ASAP. And as it turns out, they could. So what happened then was, well, the internet was melting down and we had to turn our personal accounts into like official accounts as well. You know, PiggyVest was tweeting. I was tweeting from my personal account. My co-founders were tweeting from their personal accounts. People who work in customer service were tweeting from both, you know, they're like answering the the live chats and tweeting from their personal accounts to reassure people. Uh, But Luckily for us, two hours after that happened, we were able to generate new virtual account numbers for people and kind of turn the situation around. Uh, I can tell you, like, after that, I just kind of went to sleep for the rest of the day. It was, like, probably the toughest six hours because it was, like, what's going... And the, the blogs had already carried it, so after doing the new virtual accounts, we had to then, like, settle down to start sending DMCA notices to people, like, this is not correct, take it down or correct it. You know, the trust balancing thing is really hard for fintechs in Africa. I think it's, I don't think it, fundraising is hard. You know, uh, partnerships are hard. Regulation is hard. Maintaining the trust of uh, close to 3 million people, probably the hardest thing. That's interesting. It's, it's, it feels like in a way that you're kind of fighting this uphill battle on trust. So tell me about like how some of the, you know, obviously you've gone through a lot and it's, bit tough at times, but tell me about how it's become successful in the last, you know, five years since you started PVest. Oh, I, I think that a lot of the success would be owed in like for the most part to the people who use the platform. Um, because I'll say that we didn't set out intentionally to build, you know, a referral system. They indicated it for us and we kind of just followed their lead. And from then on, um, having followed their lead onto, you know, we should, you know, create this tone of voice because this is what resonates with people. Um, you know, we should create a good experience because they'll talk about like the customer service and the experience on the app anyway. Uh, a referral system because these people are the best marketers of the product. So we, uh, after discovering that people will talk about the experience on the platform, we did, we decided to invest in building a referral system like into the platform where you as an active user have a unique link. It's pretty common everywhere. It just wasn't as used here for some reason. And then, you know, you'd go out there and you bring someone else onto the platform. But the difference is, it's not just that person signing up. It's that person signing up and going through five different steps in the platform, and then you get rewarded. And so people really take it as I'm signing you up and I'm teaching you how to use the platform. And a very 
intended consequence of that is that you form a community of people who are very protective of the product. So you know, when we started, it was just a savings app that was helping people save daily, weekly, monthly. Um, a few like a few months into it, we had users asking us, "So what are people that don't receive salaries? What are people whose like incomes are infrequent? How do you want to help them?" And so we built a feature for that. And then you know they asked us, "Treasury bills are too low, uh, and you know they are too prohibitive." Um, one of the interesting things about the Nigerian financial system then was people who made less than 100K didn't have a chance to invest because the minimum buying like um, amounts for investment opportunities in Nigeria was really high and people's average um, monthly salaries are really low. So they were like, you guys should be able to build something like that. And so we built a democratized um, savings feature where people could lock as low as a thousand naira, which is just about two and a half dollars and get um, like very competitive interest rates as people who were out there um, locking in $20,000. So the, the users yeah. continued to guide us on this is the next thing we want to see. So Figiverse is built on the back of listening to the users and then creating features and products that are accessible and affordable to people like us. And so that's kind of how we've been able to maintain success. All right. I hope you guys are enjoying the conversation so far. On this podcast, I always talk about practicing gratitude. And today, I'm really thankful for our sponsor, Cash App, in making the quest possible. Cash App is the best way to spend, save, invest in stocks, and buy cryptocurrency in a way that's easy to understand and accessible to everyone. From payments, banking, investing, you can do it all on one platform. It's available for download on the App Store and Google Play. So you better go get that $10 your friend owes you from two years ago. Now, where were we? Tell me, one of the, the questions I'd love to ask is about founders' personal growth. Because for me, starting a company was this tremendous growth vehicle for my own learning and self-improvement about myself. You know, I think that I couldn't have gotten anywhere else. Um, I like to tell people I spent, you know, tens of millions of dollars on my own business school and education, you know? And so what has your education been like in your startup? Oh, wow. It's, I think it's completely changed like um, a lot about who I am, right? And how I'd approach situation. Um, I'm a lot less impulsive, you know, I'm more driven to like research it's like attending business school several times over, sometimes flunking out, sometimes going back. You can, you pick up a lot of tips and tricks along the way, and then you become like a meld of all of these experiences, right? Like I studied computer engineering and in 2016, I found myself building a financial company, which meant I had to get ready for that. So I've, you know, gone halfway through a master's degree in finance and banking. I hope to finish. I don't know if I will. Um, you know, I've taken, I don't know how many edX and Coursera courses I'm on Google constantly. Um, and that's another thing that I've learned is it's not a terrible thing to not know. You just don't. And then you just go find out. That's a really important one. So, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, I say, I don't know, like, I don't know. It used to be something that I was like, you know, I I don't like not to know things, but on this journey, you, you can't know everything is impossible and you cannot be ashamed of that. So. You know, you kind of own it and then you go find out and then you go find out again. You know, you learn again, you unlearn some things that are wrong. Um, and then I had to reshape what I like thought was leadership. 
and kind of figure out what does work for the people who work with us. So it's been a whole thing. It's like a human being going into, I don't know, a molding machine and coming out in a different shape. Say, say more about the leadership side. I'm curious how your leadership style has evolved. That's actually almost the same as who I was before 2018. Um, yeah. I would, you know, I would give instructions and when it wasn't done well, I'd just go ahead and do it myself, you know, and all of those things. And then, you know, in, I, I, we were in the Google Launchpad program and then there's this thing they do where they send anonymous feedback forms to people who work with you. And those people have to send like the results back and, you know, we were reading it and, you know, it was, it was kind of hard to take in. People saying you micromanage yeah. when you think that you're just like, you know, asking for feedback. People saying, you know, you're not like providing an avenue for them to grow when you think that you're just helping out and like trying to work on things faster. So hard, it was really hard not to take it personally, but then, you know, we learned not to. Uh, and then, you know, there was a lot of positive things there to build upon. So we just kind of went from the angle of how about we build upon the good things and then start to learn like the difficult ones. So now, um, I, I think I'm more comfortable with asking people to go do it again, try it a different way. I'm more okay with people not doing things the exact way that I would have done it. That terrifies me, I'll say. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> you kind of have to be okay with it. And, you know, it's more than, more than like, um, more than like not, it ends up very well actually. And having different styles in the company has kind of made us the better for it. I was always afraid of, you know, oh, they're going to mess it up if they do it this way. But it turns out if you kind of just stand back, people will learn from their mistakes. And so a lot of those things has just been around allowing people to grow into the role that you've hired them for because they're smart. And also understanding that I myself didn't come fully formed. I kind of had to learn. So let people learn. I love that. There's there's two interesting things, super interesting things in there that I want to point out. One is like, Letting if there's a, a surrender that you have to accept yeah. when you're, you know, as a founder, when you get to a certain stage or really anyone in life. But yeah. I think especially you're forced to as a, as a founder where, you know, a lot of us want control over what's happening and the feeling of control. And at a certain point, it, if you want your team to be able to flourish and grow, they need to be able to have the control. And you have to say, OK, I'm going to let you do it even the way I wouldn't want to do it, you know, I would, because that's how you learn and have agency and ownership. And that was super hard for me to, to accept, you know, <laughs> like even today, it's like, I have like a, uh, like a little, when I, when someone's going to do something that I'm like, I don't know if I want to, I would do it that way. There's like a little bit of clench. And then you're like, okay, I'm just going to yeah. relax. And like, I, I can <laughs> tell before it was subconscious. I would just be like, no, don't do it that way. And now it's like, okay, I'd like know the feeling and I know intellectually, I don't want to bow into that feeling. So I'm just going to like focus yeah. and like, let it go. That was one thing. And the, the other thing I want to highlight is the, your, your, your 360 review that you got from Google, um, you know, having anonymous feedback from the people who work directly with you. If people, you know, a lot of my listeners probably haven't heard of that, but there's this concept of a 360 review, which is really super important for anybody, you know, Oftentimes it's in the workplace, but it can also be in the context of like your life, but just getting somebody who's like a neutral third party to be able to collect really candid, anonymous feedback from the people around you, you will learn so much about yourself. Like, even though it's, 
it's so hard. I had this experience where I did a 360 review for my, my last company, Atrium, and my executive team all filled it out. My coach had a collected, he actually did the interviews. It wasn't just a survey, he like interviewed them in person and then aggregated the feedback so it was anonymized. And, and then we went over it in front of um, the whole executive team. I went over it with them and it was very brutal. Like people were like, Justin doesn't care. I feel like he's just using us and he doesn't care about us. Or I think right. I feel that, you know, he's unfair. He's creating these like different unfair situations. And I was like, I thought I was good with it. But then when we were going through the situation, I was like, oh my God, like I, I, I started defend, being defensive, you know, because mm-hmm. I was like, no, that's not a fair interpretation. Like this is, that's not how I felt, you know, like, or that's not what I was trying to do. But then it was interesting because it was, it was a moment of really teachable moment for me. I, that my coach paused. He was like, okay, it's not safe to give him feedback. He's not like accepting this feedback. And then we went outside and he was like, you have to go, you're like triggered, right? You're like, you're angry right now. Your amygdala is firing and you're really angry. You've got to go do something to calm down. So like scream and shout, jump up and down, do some pushups, run up the driveway. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm like, I'm not fucking angry. I'm fine. You know, (laughs) in, in the most angry voice possible. And then so my coach, Matt Mochari, who's a legend, he's amazing. Uh, he runs, he just starts running up the driveway and he's like, you can't catch me. And he's 10 years older than me and probably at least 50 pounds heavier than I am. So I was like, what? No way. And I just start sprinting after him and he actually almost beat me. And so I'm like really trying, you know, and then at the end of the the run, he starts screaming. He's like yelling. He's like, ah, and he's like, just, so I started yelling and at the end, you know, we're, we go like a hundred yards or something. And then I'm like, Oh, okay. I like let it out. You know, I like kind of got the energy out. And so then we went back into the room and I was able to hear the feedback and really understand what people were saying. You know, they weren't necessarily they, their experience, no matter what it was, it was valid. That was how they interpreted my actions. And that was like such an eye opener for me as a, as a leader, you know? I mean, when you have to be ready to like understand the feedback, it's really tough. It's, it's very, it's probably one of the hardest work things that I've ever done, you know, or because it feels, it's so easy to feel like, oh, they're attacked, attack, I'm being attacked. Yeah. Um, and that was, and I was misinterpreted or, or whatever, you know, <laughs> um, cool. Well, I'd love to talk about, uh, some of your other endeavors because it sounds like every, like every, um, good entrepreneur, you know, you like to do many different things and yeah. I know you've started an angel fund called first check Africa. And then also a organization called the, the Feminist Coalition. And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about some of the other projects you're working on. Right. When I started in tech in 2013, um, I was very young, I think. Uh, and one of, the, um, one of the things that helped me, first of all, were my co-founders, who I'd known for a while. And then we met this um, really cool angel investor very early on. And so he kind of went ahead of us every time and made the way kind of smoother. But an important part was that like at that, as at that time, I could count how many women were actively in the tech space. And in 2016, it was better, but you know, I could still count them. Now it's better now and like there's way more people, but we're still not enough. And every time you ask, you know, VCs or accelerator programs, why are there not more women here? They either get defensive or they say they're not like enough women to actually fund. And I'm like, hmm, is that so? Like I was at an accelerator program and I was speaking 
And I looked around the room and I realized I was speaking to an all-male room. And I asked the coordinator, like, why are there no more women here? And his answer was, you know, this is deep tech. And so I'm like, so what does that mean? Like, what does this is deep tech mean? And he says, you know, women don't like this one. Or maybe he said it was hard for women or something like that. And I just, I'm like, but you invited a woman to speak. And then he says something that alludes to, oh, you are different. And I really hated that because the concept of me being different than the rest of women is just not true. And that also got me thinking that the, the, uh, the line about there not being enough women to fund is also not true. Um, because a lot of like funding is done via like this weird heuristic where everyone funds people who look like them or sound like them or approach things the way they would approach it. Or, uh, you know, people like to say this nonsense about a fund who you would get a beer with or something like that. I think that's ridiculous. Sometimes you can yeah. get a beer with the person just because they don't want to. And that's fine. That doesn't mean they won't build a good product. But that <sighs> always makes me, means that the pipeline gets narrower, like for women, as you go. People will make intros for fellow men, but that that's, women are not as lucky. And so by the time you get to from, from pre-seed to seed stage, you're like finding one woman in 10. Because the people who are willing to take a risk on you at the very early stage, like our angel investor took a risk on us when we weren't even sure where Push TV was going. He gave us 25K. I was just like, yeah, go crazy. No one does that at scale for women. Like it just doesn't happen. And so I thought we're not asking, you know, people to fund the, put, put money in the fund right now. But I've gone ahead and I've been luckier than most women because I've spoken to them. Right. And so there's an instinct to an innate instinct to pay it back, right? In the way that I can. So and it's also experimental in that the question that I want to answer for myself is is it true that there is not enough women to fund? If it turns out that it's true, I'll admit it and you know move on. But I don't think so. I think that if you are able to go even before pre-seed and kind of find women who are at the very, very early stage of starting like tech companies and working on these ideas before they give up because pre-seed is too hard to raise or seed stage is too hard to raise, I think that we could significantly improve the number of women that like pass through the funding pipeline in Nigeria first and then in the rest of Africa. And that's kind of what Fast Check is about. That's um, a great mission. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, so I mean, how, we'll see. Well, so, yeah, how, are, you, are you investing now? So, yeah, we, we've started um, looking at companies. We had, in the first month, we had like submissions from all over like, the continent. And so now we started scheduling calls and speaking to startups and we should hopefully make our first investment in the first half of this year. We have to get it so, right. So that's very important. I love that. So what, what are the lessons in investing in Africa or startups in Africa? So I've invested in some African companies, including like Paystack, which just uh, was acquired by Congrats. Stripe. Thank you. Yes. They were in my group <laughs> at Y Combinator and, um, okay. you know, I was just, I was a, a really big fan of Shola um, the founder there. And, you know, so was, I mean, obviously that, that worked out really well. I'm curious, you know, I've never actually been to Africa though. I have to admit, I want, it's on my high on the list. And I, I just, I'm curious, what do you think the opportunities are in, in the investment side on the tech side, you know? Well, I, well, the first thing is that fintech is like going insane right now in Nigeria. Yeah. Like, you know, from payments, your Florida world became a unicorn and everyone's just like lost it. You know, there's products coming out every day. There's products getting into Y Combinator every day. And so yeah. I say that like as of right now, 
probably the biggest sector of Nigeria's tech ecosystem, and Africa's actually, is financial technology. So there's a lot going on there. And then um, as really close runner-ups, there's um, clean energy, and then there's health. But um, I suppose the most important thing to know about investing in Africa, kind of like when you invested in Paystack, is understanding that our problems are very, very different than the problems in the West and does require investors that are, first of all, open-minded. And, you know, everyone says open-mindedness, but like you really need it here uh, because, you know, a, a, a typical founder is not just um, trying to run a company. He's running his company and he's... 80% responsible for providing his own infrastructure. And, you know, a lot of the time when you're building a company in the West, even if you look at a place like South Africa, you're building an existing infrastructure. But here, you're kind of, you're going to have to build what you need, right? And I'm not talking yeah. about, like, just the financial, like, rails that you need to build upon. We have to provide our own electricity, you know, transport, internet. All of those things are a bit broken here. And so there's that journey to fix it while also building the product that the investor has invested in. So our challenges are a bit different. Regulation works a bit differently here. We require loads of patience kind of like to navigate it <laughs> and kind of make a success of whatever you're building here. So there's, and the interesting thing though, is that those challenges are also the opportunities that like lie here because like Paystack, like Flutterwave, um, like all the other companies that have gone before, figuring out solutions to, do, to those big problems is the opportunity. Right? Fotowiz built a billion-dollar company out of fixing problems of payment from across Africa. Paystack's done the same for merchants in Nigeria. Like all of the problems that we outline as, oh, this doesn't work, this doesn't work, this doesn't work, the startups that go on to fix it and startups that will make you money. That's awesome. That's a, that's a difficult challenge. I mean, it sounds daunting, right? But the oftentimes the best companies come from like the hardest grinds because like it's hard yeah, to I'll compete. Say. It's hard for new, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I love that. Something that we always talked about at Y Combinator about Stripe. You know, Stripe is like such a slog of a company to create in the beginning, you know, but obviously then now, that's, yeah. that's what bakes it into something great. Cool. Well, we usually... Finish up with a couple questions from our Discord server. Habiba, you want to go ahead? Yes. Thank you so much for being here today. First off, it's actually something that um, I think a lot of people people come across this problem. Uh, when you're doing so much, and I could see evidently that you're doing so much at once, and you know, with the whole thing about women empowerment, you do things on the side of your main business. And I feel like a lot of the time it's very easy for us to get so overwhelmed and to easily burn out and become less productive. How do you manage that? I, I'll say, I think that the, um, the first thing to understand is there's like, I don't think there's anyone who can manage doing too many things at the same time very well. Um, you will always drop mm -hmm. the ball on some things and you, know, you kind of have to be okay with that. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing is understand that, you know, you're not going to be able to juggle all of them perfectly constantly. Some things will fall by the wayside. You apologize for them, you fix it, and then you move on again. So the spirit of trying to do too many things at the same time or doing a lot of things at the same time is understanding that you're also human. Sometimes you take a step back. I've had entire weeks where I've gone like, oh, I, my brain had like shut down and I just couldn't be productive. So I just sat in my room in the dark and watched TV shows, right? And then you come back, you make up for lost time and then you keep going again. 
right? Uh, sometimes you realize, oh, mm-hmm. I can't balance too many things. So you drop some and that's also okay. You know, again, you're just one person. You have many interests, but you only have, you know, so much time, so much energy, so much concentration, so much anything. So um, the key is self-awareness, right? How much can you actually humanly do? You know, and when you can't, are you self-aware enough to like admit to yourself that you can't? Do you drop it? And, you know, do you listen to yourself enough to know when you're tired? Burnout is a real thing and I've experienced it and I've taken steps. Like I was just like, okay, you know what? I need to take like some time away from all of this work. I kind of recalibrate and figure out what do I want to continue to do? So there is, there is no science to it, unfortunately. There is just um, art of listening to yourself, the art of understanding what your own limits as a person are. And, and it differs for every different person. I can balance four things, five things at the same time. And some people can only do one. That doesn't mean, you know, that I'm better than them. It just means that I can stretch a little more and, you know, we will all achieve success in very different ways. So it's really about who you are, how much you listen to yourself and how much you know yourself. <laughs> I, I, I love this conversation. <laughs> on an aisle. Yeah. 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 Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This is great. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> all right. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Aroayo. She's a reminder of the world that you don't need to be a tech bro from Silicon Valley to be a successful founder. You just need the right vision, unflinching determination, and a strong heart. Shout out to Habiba, our Quest fellow for the episode who asked some great questions. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to drop us a rating, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and check out all Quest-related content at listen.justin.quest. Really appreciate you guys tuning in. Take care of each other, and I'll see you next week.